0: I am Terry Patar, I lead the Chains Intelligence Unit, and we are talking in this episode to Ivana Hu of Omelas, and with me on the podcast I also have two of my colleagues, Carl McGrawty, and for the first time, Alison Evans. Um, Alison, would you introduce yourself and uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, thanks, Terry. I joined Jane's in April 2020 um, to run the RFI request for information service for the Jane's intelligence unit. My background is as a linguist. Uh, I did Japanese and Korean at Oxford as an undergrad. um, And then I got into country risk for about seven years, specializing in the political um, and security aspects of Northeast Asia.
0: That's brilliant. Alison is here to lend some intellectual weight to uh, our team because, you know, otherwise with me and Kyle, uh, we're a bit lightweight. Um, (laughs) And and Kyle, you've done a few of these episodes before, but uh, it'd be great, Ivana, if you could introduce yourself and and give us an idea of of some of your background and research uh, that we want to talk about today, particularly around open source intelligence, AI, and the ethics involved.
2: Yeah, sounds great. Um, Thanks for having me on the podcast. You're welcome. So, um, yeah. So as you mentioned before, um, I'm the CEO of Omelas. I am also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, uh, which is a think tank here in Washington, D.C. Um, most of my work, previous work, has been abroad in the Middle East and Africa. So I spent around six and a half years there looking specifically into emerging technology for the private sector, but also for the government looking at the technology strategies and platforms used by terrorist groups with a focus on Hezbollah, AQI, and then later ISIS, uh, and the Taliban in their operations, recruitment, and propaganda. So I did a lot of work around messaging when it comes to countering violent extremism. Um, And then probably around 2014 and 2015 in Europe, we were seeing this huge influx of um, pretty bad (laughs) Russian propaganda, but, you know, that was sort of obviously the start of their new phase in their active measures, Um, and so we started tracking the messaging of state actors as well.
0: That's fascinating, and I think your journey probably mirrors what a lot of other organizations, ourselves included, have done in terms of tracking messaging from non-state groups when that was very much the primary threat we were dealing with to now looking more at those state-level actors. How has that transition gone for you? And, and, you know, is it a complete transition or are you still also researching and digging into those kind of non-state groups as
2: well? I think the transition from non-state to state has been pretty seamless in terms of a lot of the TTPs used by different groups. The only big difference is that actually with non-state actors, it's a little bit more difficult, especially when they are banned by social media platforms, right? And because of the censorship, they are a lot more sophisticated in using encryption and being on the dark web and um, using encrypted apps, places that are much harder to track, whereas it is a lot easier to track, for example, every single channel of RT um, for Russia or all of the state-owned enterprises of China.
0: Right, of course, yeah. yeah. And I guess there's that merging between what is – those sort of mainstream i guess or state backed news channels and social media these days but there's also more going on perhaps behind the scenes in terms of the kind of resources i guess state actors are able to apply as well into you know they've they've got more more funding more more backing perhaps or more people even than than some of the state the non-state groups so it's it's a larger scale of problem i guess as well
2: it's a much yeah from a data perspective russia publishes around 20,000 stories every single day so that is a huge amount of volume for Omlas where we're collecting the over propaganda of about 150 key state and non-state actors we're looking at anywhere between 1 million to 1.3 million pieces of content every single month right and so that mm-hmm. is a huge amount of stuff that's being put out there and having the ability to track it and, and distill it into operational analytics where at least useful analytics is i think the hardest part and i do want to add that you know we've been talking about non-state and state actors as if they're pretty black and white but it's not right it's a, it's a continuum and so you still have actors like Hezbollah and Hamas and a lot of these proxy groups that are already funded by the state actors Um, But we count sometimes, you know, we count them as a non-state actor. Cool. And so it's for us, it's been really interesting to see, for example, what Iran posts and then some of the very peculiar language in Farsi, for example, show up on something that Hezbollah is posting, which then, you know, shows up sometimes on a Venezuelan state press. And you're like, hmm, that's a really interesting cascade um, of just how some of the actors are working together and collaborating.
1: Yeah, it'd be really interesting to talk a little bit more about the content, you know, whether it's non-state actors or state actors from different parts of the world, like Iran and Venezuela, and how their content of the messaging is actually similar in language or tone. Do you have any kind of um, insight into
2: that? Definitely. So there are definitely some really interesting. I'm not going to call it, you know, a direct collaboration because I don't think we'll ever know that. But a lot of times tasks and the, and and Iranian, um, TV, they will actually republish each other's content, which, which is really, re- really interesting. And then so that's like from a content perspective and then from a, um, tactics perspective what we're seeing right now is that you know china is collaborating a lot with uh, russia and that's something that they talked about at um the i think what the meeting was yesterday or the day before um where the foreign ministers of china and russia um, talked about collaboration in multiple high-level arenas, we, you know, we can kind of guess what they are. But one of the place, one of the arenas that China is learning from Russia on is definitely information operations. And so, for example, we've been tracking this campaign, an I.O. campaign from Russia about how Russia has, um, because of what happened in World War II, essentially has saved the world from fascism right? And in the first week of May during uh, Victory Day, that number dramatically spiked up. And when I mean like dramatic spiked up, I mean like it was like tenfold what it normally is. And last week, it was the anniversary of China's liberation from Japan in World War II. And so China did actually exactly the same thing that Russia did in terms of the kind of content it was putting out. And then he ended with with this note that essentially said, See, if we actually work together, um, you know, with the U.S., we can do great things. Talking about, of course, how China and the U.S. were on the same side during World War II and the bifurcation that has um, recently happened between the two countries. And so they were really clever in tying in a historical event that's of a huge significance to a current event where, you know, they're trying to paint the U.S. as this belligerent, unipolar, dominant, you know, force or bully.
0: That's quite remarkable in terms of being able to track that and seeing those connections happening. The volume of the information is obviously a big challenge, but also having the expertise to know where to look and and what you're looking for in terms of the growth of this kind of problem or this kind of issue. You know, what what does it mean what what kind of impact does it have for researchers like yourself or for Allison and Kyle and, and I who are working with open source information and delivering open source intelligence to our customers what's the impact for the of those kinds of shifts not just not just in volume but perhaps in tactics as well you know h- how skilled do you have to be and how knowledgeable and expert you have to be on these particular areas and topics to be able to really delve into the detail in the way that you've done there or um, to understand it, you know, and, and what's the learning curve, I guess, you know, if you if you were taking somebody who doesn't, who hasn't perhaps re- researched this, this type of strategic messaging in or information operations, and, and has to now work with this type of data that, that you're working with, how do you get them up to that level where they can start to understand it and start to track the sort of campaigns you're seeing?
2: It takes a huge amount of training. So internally, uh, when we're hiring analysts and because almost all of our machine learning algorithms have a human loop. So, for example, a campaign is not made officially a campaign unless a human has gone through what the machine has flagged um, and verified it. And so uh, we normally take. In folks from the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, um, because they have a great analytical intelligence program. And then on top of that, there, I mean, we give them almost, you know, a year of training before letting them make some of the bigger decisions around should this campaign be up there or, you know, is this just noise? Um, And then I think. It takes about another year or two to really understand how do I actually take the analytics I'm seeing on the data side and put it together with the things that you can't really quantify, like atmospherics and what's going on in the geopolitical um, space, to really develop that sense of intuition or that you know gut feeling. Um, that's mm-hmm. the more the non scientific way <laughs> of putting it sure. um, of saying, hey, I think this thing looks a little bit fishy. Um, you know, we probably need to go into the back end of the system and go through all the raw data and make sure that it's actually correct. Um, so I think, I mean, for us, it takes a huge amount of training. Um, and being an open source intelligence um, tracker is not, it's not just about having the right data, but it's also making sure that you can interpret it in the right way. And so the more that we do this, the more like I feel like I, there's so much more that I don't know. So I'm a big fan of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I think we're at a point where, you know, we're so far sort of on the curve that right now we're only starting to feel like, okay, like we have this, but that's only because we've been at this for at least, you know, 10 years.
0: So just for anyone in our audience who doesn't, who isn't familiar with it, the Dunning-Kruger effect, maybe if you can explain that a little bit just in the context of this work.
2: Sure. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is essentially this cognitive bias that um, novices, when they first start, um, they have this, you know, when they first start, they're not super confident. But then there's this exponential growth in confidence in around year, you know, one or two where they're like, oh, my gosh, I now know everything. Um, And it takes a while for them to start to realize like, oh, no, I don't. And the problem is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and then at their self-confidence level, um, just drops significantly and they kind of stays <laughs> there for a couple of years until finally slowly starts to creep up with more experiences with, uh, with more, you know, years of experience or years of knowledge, whatever it is.
0: I'm still you know. waiting for that to happen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I was I'm at the that.
0: bottom part of that loop.
3: <laughs> I was going to say that is so depressing, but I remember sitting down to my first um lecturer at, at kings um and the lecturer said congratulations now you're here you're actually at university because an undergrad degree doesn't count which immediately put <laughs> us all on edge but he said um now you're really going to start learning because if you think about it your ability to learn in 24 hours nowhere near matches the rest of the community's ability to publish in 24 hours so even if you could speed up and read all day, every day, you are still um, aware of less of the total amount of information that's out there as each day progresses, which is the definition of getting dumber by the day. And that's what master students are. Um, yeah, talk about depressing. Thanks, <laughs> Carl. <laughs> but you, um, so on a, on a not so depressing, and actually, I'm, I'm a huge fan of lawfare and um and your colleague Ben Nemo he had a great podcast on about some of the recent um trends that he's seeing um and I think it was followed up by a Reuters article a little bit after that that goes duped by russia freelancers are ensnared in disinformation campaigns by the promise of easy money um <laughs> that's got to throw your algorithms for a bit of a loop <laughs>
2: um i think there are, i have not read that um Reuters article, but I think there are probably two different ways that we can interpret that. The first is um, it's definitely, so disinformation is kind of like those things that sort of feed into itself. And so the more that the media continues to talk about disinformation and foreign election interference, especially with the U.S. election coming up, um, the less blame we put on ourselves. And so it's like, yeah, are there bad actors out there? that are kind of, you know, putting more gas onto the fire. Like absolutely. But they didn't really start the fire. We did. Right. It's the internal, um, strife of the, of the U S and the fact that a lot of groups here just don't get along with each other. Yeah. And so that is one of, yeah.
3: I was going to say, it's it's a crisis of strategic narrative. It's a loss of confidence in strategic narrative. Um, and you're you're right. We didn't start it. What was amazing about um about the the article and the podcast was references to the um to these freelance journalists being um almost expected that they would do some of their first work as they were starting out as journalists for free, and then being surprised when they were a paid, b paid on time and well, and c um very little of their stuff was edited, or when it was edited, the bias was so um so prominent that they were really concerned about what their work was being used for. Um, but that if you started to go back into the, um, the websites, and this is where reverse image searching comes in handy and being able to understand, um, you know, this person does not exist and, and fake profile images that the profile images of the editors and some of the individuals on the website purporting to be a, an independent news website were all fake and computer generated.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, um, uh, and I think it that dovetails with another similar problem, which is it, disinformation has gone so popular as a field, and there's a lot of money in it, right from both um, the private sector and especially from the government that all of a sudden overnight seemed like everybody about two years ago just became a disinformation expert. and we saw that a similar phenomenon happening in the counterterrorism space about five or six years ago, um, especially during during the Obama era, when there was just so much money for it that everybody was, you know, started to do CBE and even people who were, were not qualified, didn't have experience. Um, and then when Trump came into the White House and a huge amount of the budget got cut, you know, it it probably wasn't the right thing to do in terms of cutting a budget for an important field, but it definitely, um, it definitely left some of the, uh, non-experts, um, out. Right. And so I think disinformation is about to go through that same kind of phase. Like everybody is an expert, even just a freelancer, um, who has never really studied it before and does not really understand the history of active measures and all these things. um, they are now I, I mean, I think eventually, you know, the field, the the hype is going to die down. And with that, um, some of the experts uh, <laughs> will also be weeded out.
1: Don't you think that's particularly dangerous when we're considering questions around ethics in this space? What do you mean? So if um, there's a lot of people who are relatively new, don't necessarily have expertise or have expertise, perhaps in the cyber or disinformation or a specific country or aspect of national security, but haven't necessarily considered um, ethics in AI or some of those more philosophical um, or qualitative aspects that might also be important. Um, quite important when we're considering messaging and the influence that has on has on different populations.
2: Absolutely. I mean, ethics think OSINT um, is something that people don't talk about very often because it's a very squishy subject that you can't really put quantifiable met- metrics onto it. There are no, like you know, KPIs. Um, and so a lot of people don't talk about it, but I think when it comes to, and it, it really wasn't until ethics and AI became a thing that people sort of went backwards and be like, Oh, hold on a sec. Like we should also have a, um, a, we should also have standards for OSINT in general. Um, because I would actually argue that OSN and AI overlap, but there's a lot, there's a lot more data um, in OSINT than there is in AI because that also tends to be a little bit more, I think, um, specific and proprietary. And so, um, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing right now in ethics in OSINT, so there are a couple of buckets that I like to think about or have a frame, a framework around. The first is you have sort of the biases in the training data sets. So cherry picking your training data Etc. Um, the second is an accidental mi- misuse, right? So um, using something like Facebook Live uh, to record um, a gruesome attack or um, or rape or something like that instead of what it was intended for. And then you also have, and then you have sort of have the intentional malign uh, uses of OSINT and any of the algorithms I can create from that. Um, and a small bucket that's similar to that, but I think should be a little bit different because it's becoming a trend of the future, which is hacking into um, algorithms and, and hacking into AI um, through data poisoning or through any other methods. And so when you when it's. And then and then, of course, you sort of have that privacy concern that overlaps all of that. Right. And so, you know, what is the role of the state in governing OSINT's? um, individual privacy, what's fair and what is not. If you put something up on Facebook, um, you know, is it, is it fair for me to, for example, take somebody's headshot and then put it onto a deep fake, um, of, for a porn video, like what, where do we draw the line? And then is there also a difference between private companies buying OSINT, um, but yet still very intrusive data versus what the government can't do? And then mm-hmm. finally, and this is something that, you know, I wrote a blog post about this in 2016 that has been cited um, pretty um, in a bunch of different places, um, including a lot of stuff around human rights um, investigations. But one of the responses I got back was from a group called Privacy International, and they wrote um, a response to my article saying, well, you know, OSINT should be different from social media intelligence as well. Um, because social media intelligence should be treated differently because, you know, it's attached to a specific person.
0: So is that, is is the concern that do you think and where the ethical questions get raised more about the gathering of information on specific individuals who are identifiable and less so on data when it's aggregated and perhaps a little bit more anonymized? Is that, is that sort of where the line kind of lands in in the sense of where it's okay versus where it's not? I know this is still up for debate. I think
2: ideally mm. um, that is where we draw the line. However, um, a well-trained investigator can always pull anonymous data um, and use a bunch of other data sets to track down an individual.
0: Sure. And I think, yeah, when, when over the years, I guess we've seen quite a few examples of that happening, haven't we? And, and it's, yeah, I, I guess there's no, there's no way to guarantee in an anonymized data set whether that will be feasible or not, or is there?
2: Is... Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's, I almost think that like if you're just getting one singular set of data, um, that's anonymized, that's at a group level, etc., um, that, is a lot safer than even if you get six different data sets for that specific geolocation, because then you can start to match, you know, the timestamps, you can do a bunch of things like that to try to whittle it down to like, okay, I think, you know, this hash um, can belong to these three individuals. Um, And so what we've seen so far though, is um, they're now making a really big di- uh, differentiation between location and non-location-based data. Um, so something like your ads ID, which is basically what your phone comes with. And um, both Android and iPhone, you can turn them off. But for example, like on Android, it's super easy to do. But on the iPhone, to turn off your ads ID, is it's super, super hard. Um, and so a lot of people just walk around with as I not knowing what it is, but it is technically o- open source data like you can go buy that from any of the big advertising data uh, bro- brokerage firms. Right. So like. Is that ethical or should we actually make sure that only a subset of people get access to that, I think, is a question that um, we're grappling with here in the U.S.? Especially with um, you know DHS and Secret Service buying ads ID data and location based data.
0: Right, right, and that data ultimately is being collated and pulled together, uh, you know, uh, as the name suggests, to to sell advertising to people. But it it effectively is in some ways providing open source signals intelligence.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep,
0: exactly to, to whoever gets it. Yeah, and so I guess it's difficult determining the 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 intent behind why why organizations might want it um i mean do you think do you you think some of that perception has shifted as well this year with the pandemic in that maybe a year ago people would have been more inclined to say actually the the government should be restricted in how it uses this type of data or you know um has access to that type of data whereas now people are actually saying well you know for the reasons of um, managing healthcare issues and, and, or, you know, crisis response or anything around that, this sort of, um, extraordinary year that we've been having that actually attitudes are shifting and, and what was perhaps seen as unethical before now people are starting to see actually there is a reason why governments may need
2: that data. Yeah, um, that's a great question. We've been seeing a lot of conversations around, um, what will contact tracing do specifically Mm -hmm. to data privacy norms? And it's one of those things where, sure, you can say that um, governments are allowed to um, collect location-based data and use them for emergencies only. Um, But then the question becomes, okay, like that might work in a free and democratic country, but what happens if there's a coup and an authoritarian dictator takes over? Um, and he essentially, you know, declares that a permanent state of emergency. And we've seen this happen a lot. Um, then what happens to the data, right? Is he going to use this kind of data, um, that was collected for, that was initially collected, um, for a public health crisis response, um, but using it instead to, Kill, or to silence his political opponents, and so it's it's a bit of a slippery slope, uh, which I think is the reason why, at least in the U.S., um, a lot of contact tracing, for example, is voluntary. There are obviously a a lot of times where that's not, um, but it at least asks people to opt in. But you know, based on what I've just. Based just based on conversations that I've had with a lot of my friends who are not in this space and they're, you know, physical therapists and doctors and things like that. A lot of them are sort of like throwing up their hands like, you know what, like I've already given away all my data to Facebook and like Google, like it doesn't really matter to me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Right. Yeah. I guess, I guess for an ordinary person who's not thinking in the sense in the terms that we might do when we are come approaching this type of issue from the perspective of an OSINT researcher analyst etc practitioner and whatever we call ourselves um you know or somebody who's trying to analyze information operations etc we've got a different appreciation perhaps of what's possible with all of that information and data which yeah I think probably is very different to the ordinary person walking around um They're happily giving away their data.
2: Yeah, but, you know, Google is about to launch their um, ethics as a service. They're calling it (laughs) E-A-A-S.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: So, you know, if you're a corporation (laughs) and you need uh, ethical guidelines in AI and data, um, you can go to Google. (laughs) So there's
3: a... (laughs) There's a really interesting thing. I mean, look, we're not putting the toothpaste back in the tube, right? It, it's there. It's out. This data is, is, it permeates every aspect of our lives all the time. Um, I, like Alison, Ivan, I suspect like you, um, a real fan of bombshell and the, the quote from Bom- bombshell that process is my valentine. Um, you know, when I was talking to Terry about how we, um, how we talk about ethics or standards within our own masterclass training. One of the things that I said right at the beginning was if we look to the legislation that we have got in the UK around Ripper, around um, uh, GDPR and, and others, and we start to apply those processes that we, as far as we understand them, that we know a public body is um, – beholden to, such as the MOD or or any other government organization, then we're a lot further down the line of establishing internal processes where we can hand on heart say we've tried our best to manage those intrusions that come with the collection of social media that are inevitable. And we've done our best to balance those with the requirement to um, report on violent extremists, for example, which is something that Jane's does. And I think that's probably part of it. So I don't blame Google for trying to establish a kind of ethics guideline. I think a lot of that has to be delivered sort of internally within these organizations before the rest of um, the public and governments start to react. I think they will end up being the ones that lead it by the fact that nobody else is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, we've been talking a lot about is just the fact that there are a lot of folks out there that wants to do ethics um, in AI guidelines and things like that. And so um, just to be fully transparent, uh, I was one of the experts that um, helped uh, essentially uh, write the ethics in AI guidelines for the Secretary of Defense, which was implemented in February of this year. Um, and so we did work with some folks from Google. We obviously worked with folks at the, um, at the DOD and a bunch of other AI and data and privacy experts. Um, but I think my biggest concern is that if the government does not come up with a good set of regulations, and GDPR is a great start, but it's also pretty poor in certain areas, especially for small, medium uh, businesses, um, I someone like Google with less than perfect record is going to fill the vacuum and become the leader. Um And so Microsoft, you know, in this, in sort of the same vein has called for the government to come up with regulations when it comes to um, the usage of facial recognition, which is a huge part of their business. And, and so if the government doesn't really step in in the right way, like the, The private sector is going to do it themselves, which is good, but you also want that leader to lead by example. And I'm not entirely sure that Google is the perfect candidate to be that leader.
3: No, but they're um, effectively the candidate that's there. The same thing with safety in car design and the same thing with safety in in airlines and all sorts of other things. It's a combination of of legislation and policy and, and internal business demands um i think we don't yet we're not yet at the stage where we've got savvy enough customers in terms of a public that is demanding this but increasingly things like threema or, or signal or um rocket chat or other platforms that provide a decentralized um encryption um are, are are being used by just normal individuals so i think i don't know maybe 5 years ago nobody would would really understand those um those tools and nobody would be really using them. Um, Now it's quite common. Most of my friends are on signal and that's not just because they're geeks and interested in this sort of stuff in their, in their professional lives. It's, it's because they want their privacy as well for nothing better than to send their girlfriends a shopping list or, you know, or ask their mom a question, um, whatever it is.
2: Yeah. And so one other thing that I do want to actually bring up in this, discussion that we're having is the fact that it seems to me that data privacy is something for the elite globally, mm-hmm. meaning that there are plenty of people um, in developing countries um, who are not thinking about this because they simply don't have the capacity to think about it or because they're too poor to provide the alternative. Right. And so, you know, if Facebook um, launches their, uh, basic version of Facebook in places like India and Kenya and wherever, like people are going to get onto Facebook and for them, the internet becomes whatever is free in that package, which is I think right now, Facebook, um, maybe Twitter, um, definitely Wikipedia. Um,
0: and just on that, I mean, we've seen over the years, plenty of surveys where people are asked, um, in countries, um, that are less developed where, where they've been asked, you know, how recently have you used the internet? And some have said, oh, I've never used the internet. And somebody asked them the question, well, how recently have you used Facebook? And said, oh, I used Facebook today. <laughs> and they've got, they don't have that conception necessarily because, you know, they've got a phone. Facebook is free because they've got, it made a deal with the phone company. So the data, if you use Facebook is free and, um, and, the, and it's not a connection between that and, and being online generally. Um. So yeah, it's, it, it's, It's interesting to see how those commercial aspects are really driving a lot of this. And as you say, there's a definite, there's these definite disparities opening up, right, in terms of Mm -hmm. different regions of the world.
2: Yep, definitely. Someone actually asked me about a year ago and about like if I had a solution and what my solution would be to the problem of content removal. Uh, for, uh, wh- whether because it's terrorist content or because it's disinformation, um, on social media platforms. And I, my, my response jokingly was, uh, we need to change how advertising model works and to somehow find, find another incentive model for companies that generate revenue from the number of clicks and the number of users and you know, the number of people who have watched this advert.
0: And presumably to go with that, there needs to be some independent auditing of a lot of these platforms to be able to work out, well, with some, with a better degree of accuracy, how much of the content on there is genuine versus how much is, is fake or how much is, you know, disinformation or misinformation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how much is actually useful to the users on that platform versus how much is um sort of influencing them in in the wrong ways, um, and presumably then if, if you were able to calculate that and work that out, that would be a value to advertisers because if if one platform was geared more towards providing reliable content to its users, advertisers mm-hmm. would be much more interested in in paying to advertise on that platform.
3: I don't know so, if that's yeah. even
0: feasible. I mean, uh, <laughs> but
3: you know, um, well, I think, I think included in that is, um, is the fact that social media provides a wonderful, um, instinctive way of expressing yourself. And we all, um, say things and throw things out there that we don't mean. We don't mean them at the time we press send. We didn't mean them when we thought about them and typed them out, but it's so easy to do that. Um, the, the idea of a built in delay, you know, a kind of five minute delay before something's actually published might be quite useful similarly um, for a platform like twitter where every tweet has its own unique id um those can all be tracked Their you know their their propagation in a in a kind of public health outbreak um, sense can be can be tracked quite easily the replacement of that particular tweet with a simple banner that says this has been um, fact checked and and doesn't meet twitter's standards here is a link to the original tweet should you wish to see it so that there's no question about censorship but we've determined that this is not and then and then not allowing that original tweet to be propagated further despite the fact it's already been identified as something fake
0: yeah i mean these are all things i think the platforms hopefully will be thinking about and and implementing to the extent they can i'm not sure as ivana said you know as you said they're they're not necessarily financially incentivized to do this right now and I, I think you're right in the sense that it won't change until those financial incentives are geared towards that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. do you think there's any legislation coming along that will eventually uh, kind of try and force them to do that?
2: I don't – um there are definitely some versions of – Legisl- of legislations that are in the works. I just don't know how effective they will be. And I don't know what the political appetite um, is to actually pass them because social media has become such a big platform for political campaigns and for um, quite on- quite honestly, just how a democratic society works, which is that a lot of people are organizing on the platforms both for good and for bad um, and so taking that down would be, I mean, trying to regulate it without infringing, especially in the U.S. on our first, uh, on the first amendment would be really, really hard. Um, but then, you know, it kind of then kind of gets that really thorny question of, okay, well, if Facebook and Twitter, you know, if they're already banned in places like China and, um, and a bunch of other countries are also thinking about banning them or at least giving government more authority over the platforms and the platforms feel obligated to say yes, just because of the uh, potential market size. Then are we going to have two different kinds of Facebook? Are we going to have three different kinds of Facebook, depending on where you are? So like a good example of this, and and actually Google Maps is very smart in doing this, um, is that depending on where your IP um, address is paying from, they will change the way that they denote certain political boundaries on a map right? Is, is that why so, Guatemala
3: keeps walking into Nicaragua? Or is it? Exactly. Is it, it walking into I mean, if they're, if they're led by a junior officer, who can't read a map anyway. Sorry, that's every junior officer I've ever met insulted. But, um, but everybody knows it's the sergeants <laughs> leading the map.
0: Reading the maps, right? yeah.
3: I, I think on, on a lighter note, I, I think, or on a, um, on a probably more relevant note, I think if we, if we think about them in terms of problems, then then that confines the way we we have the debate. Um The Arab Spring never would have happened without social media. The Hong Kong protests never happened. The, the Russian protests never would have happened without social media. These are, you're right, pivotal pieces in in daily political life. If we start to think about them as utilities, then we have a very different discussion. I mean, nobody has a discussion about where I'm driving on the road and whether that is a good or bad thing, um, you know, or what my motivation is for using the road. Everybody just accepts that there's There's a road that's being used and there are some rules to it. Um, But if we expect content moderation from these organizations, which is the political pressure, and yet still expect to have a utility delivered, which for anybody who spends any time with utilities knows most of them aren't profitable. um, It is a fundamental disruption to their to their um, business model. Yeah,
0: Yeah, there's also the downside that potentially um, diminishes their desire to innovate. Too, right? I mean, if there's not the same profit in it for them, um, (laughs) you know, a lot of those very smart people working in some of those companies may go elsewhere.
2: Yep, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's only probably. I I mean, so Kyle, I completely agree with you. Uh, I mean, social media is just technology right and technology can be used for good or bad and so a part of the my frustration with the content removal discussion and also a little bit with the cve discussion is um we can sweep away the symptoms and we should or uh, you know we should at least like treat them but at the same time what we really need to do is to um fight the problem at its root and the root of the problem is that a lot of people are really angry with each other and with the government. And so they will say things on these platforms and some of them will act on them. Yeah. Um, and so how can we actually change the structural uh problems, uh, societal problems so that they don't think about that in the first place with that, they don't that it doesn't enrage them to um, carry out acts of violence in that way. And, and that's I- a, much harder problem to solve
3: yeah and i look i'm not a fan of the um i'm, I'm not a fan of the great savior that is blockchain um i think it's going to be a long time before that starts to get put in, implemented into social media even news media as a as a method for trying to check um the the dispersion or the propagation of of um Of any misinformation. And I think we've got to make a a distinction between misinformation as a a characteristic of just sometimes you're just badly informed, Um, sometimes you're deliberately lying, and sometimes you're doing it as a campaign to support a military operation or a government operation that has strategic effect. That is not misinformation, that is disinformation, two fundamentally different things. Um, I am really curious as to whether you think any form of uh, homomorphic encryption, for example, helps us with the data security problem where you can analyze that data while still encrypted and maintain that kind of integrity, that, that trust model, but still get something out for advertisers so that they're able to have that business model while still making sure that they, um, that they adhere to the, the security and the privacy requirements that we would all appreciate.
2: That is a great idea. Um- I, unfortunately, I don't, I don't actually have the technical know-how uh, to answer it. But if there is a way, that would be a really interesting way of getting around the problem. But I Just, just,
0: yeah. sorry, carry on, Ivana. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Well, Go on. Well, I was just going to say, I'm mean, just picking up on one of the things Carl mentioned there in terms of the, obviously, the difference in intent as well. So from the, the, the research you've done and the, the information campaigns you've monitored, et cetera, how is that challenge developing? I mean, is it becoming harder or easier to work out the intent behind some of the information you're seeing when you when you identify that it's part of a, a campaign? You know, is it, is it um Is that changing in any way or is it just as difficult as it was or as easy as it was perhaps to figure out who's behind it and what their intent might be?
2: Um, I mean, the intent has stayed the same. Um, so that hasn't really changed, um, over time. I think it's just really a matter of like paying attention to which intent. And, um, so, you know, I think we kind of dropped the ball on a couple of factors and not really tracking, um, their intent and just thinking, um, and sort of thinking about them through our own, uh, biases and perspectives. Um, so in the intent had, it's, it's it's really hard to change someone's intent, right? It's not like mm-hmm. something's going to happen all of a sudden. Um, I, Iran just decides to be best buddies with Saudi, right? Like that's that's just <laughs> never going to happen <laughs> overnight. Um, but it, it has gotten a little bit harder to track, especially covert IO campaigns because everyone has gotten more sophisticated.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
2: And Mm. I.O. campaigns online in the open, you know, environment is really, really cheap as well. So it was something like Russia spent three million dollars a month on interrupting the U.S. election. Um, And that was it. Right. That's like significantly less uh, than a weapon system.
3: Yeah. And it's amazing because it takes. Um, it takes a lot on the defense side. I mean, a lot more than, than three million a month to, to get people, um, A, with the technical expertise to be able to, to, to counter this, but B, with, um, with the mindset that this is not a zero sum game. This is not a, a partisan zero sum game. And I don't just mean that, um, in a U.S. context. I mean, everywhere else. I mean, what's good for my security online is good for everybody else's. Um, it took quite a while, I think for the UK when CERT UK was um, established and before it turned into NCSE to get companies to realize that if they cooperate with each other on their own cybersecurity issues and help each other out, that's reciprocal and that builds really strong analyst level interactions. Um, and NCSE was, was pretty good at that because that was the kind of explicit remit but there's also the explicit mindset of a lot of the people who were there
0: so i guess it it takes quite a bit of effort obviously you mentioned there, to, to discern these campaigns whereas the the, the the people behind them are spending not much money or effort actually sometimes putting these out there and does the scale, does the, does the challenge of scale create bigger problems there in terms of trying to trying to stay on top of it all? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, to, to what extent, Evana, is that a problem? And and you yeah. know, because because it, it seems like it's only going to get easier for them to scale upwards, right? Especially with the way that AI is steadily developing and automated tools, etc., that that can help propagate messages.
2: Definitely. Um, we're definitely seeing a much higher volume this year than last year, for example. And, you know, that the volume is only going to go up. But I would have to say that, um, a lot of it is noise because, and this is where the metrics of effectiveness really comes in and something that a lot of governments are not very good at, which is, okay, Russia or whoever has put out these campaigns. Great. But it doesn't mean that the audience is going to take to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So how can we actually measure which campaigns are the most effective? And those are the ones that we're either going to respond to or those are the ones we're going to identify as like really weak area where there's a narrative vacuum. So we need to fill it ahead of time. Um and so it's really trying to figure out all these campaigns um, and then looking at okay, these are the ones that um has the high have the highest audience resonance and so we're only going to be focused on these because what russia i know a lot of folks have done is that because it's so cheap they're basically just throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks and so the success rate right is might only be like two two or three percent and so it's really about understanding and this kind of goes back to um the previous question about like how advanced or how technical do you have to be to be a really good ocean practitioner? And and that is the difference between, I think someone who is decent, who can identify the campaigns and know what's going on to, these are the ones that are the most effective and being able to prioritize what's out there and leaving everything else as noise.
3: I, I couldn't agree more. I think you've got, um, I mean, if you go back to something like the um, Mitrokin archives um, at, at Cambridge University, um, you know, those KGB papers are full of examples of um, disinformation campaigns, of how they fit into a broader strategic narrative for the Soviet Union. Those haven't gone away. They've just gone from an analog model to a digital model. Um, and it's, it's really quite fascinating to see that. You know, as somebody who's looking at it from the other side, it's, it's probably quite fascinating for people to see that had they lived in the former Soviet Union, now Russia, um, and, and get access to those archives. But there's a great, um, you know, a, a great Winston Churchill quote, um, talking about, um, being brighter and stronger in the hearts and the minds of men and women in many lands. We don't even get the quote right. Everybody refers to it as hearts and minds, like it's a hearts and minds campaign. But my point is that these disinformation campaigns are a very highly structured subset of government and military activity. They fit into a much larger campaign. They fit into a strategic narrative and a set of strategic objectives for one government as it looks at its place in the world in relation to other governments. Trying to understand that, I think, is really helpful when trying to identify these campaigns, because the difference between campaigns for Know, um, interference in elections or campaigns that are trying to shape a narrative on an international scale that I think is really important for successful as an analyst to understand.
1: Surely one of the benefits of all of that information as well, that, yes, as we have more information about which campaigns are likely to be most effective, we also have then more information about psychology and cognitive biases that might help us counter or target those.
2: Yep. We're definitely seeing a lot of that. And, you know, this kind of, this also goes back to a previous point about the Reuters article on uh, freelancers, right, which is that um, I think a lot of times we go into things more cynical than we used to um, in thinking that there is intentional interference and intentional um, disinformation when sometimes you know if there might only be one or two pieces but really there's um, it's just that's sort of the way that things have rolled out without any interference
3: yeah and I think the interpretation of it um, of, of one of those campaigns is very much colored by how we think about our own um, information operations and it, you know, we got to be quite honest and clear that all governments do it. Um, and it's all in service of their own strategic narrative and their own objectives. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that, that's international politics, but we do it in a very specific way. And if you look at military doctrine and, and this gets quite geeky, um, I'm, I'm not doctrine man. Um, but if, if you start to look at that, the way we structure it as a, a Western world, you know, within NATO, uh, within the US, the UK, um, that really starts to color, A, how we see these activities and B, how we think about responding to them. And so it might be that we're asking the wrong parts of government to start responding to this. You know, you're, Ivana, your you're comment about maybe we need to change the advertising model. Maybe this isn't a foreign office, Ministry of Defense problem. Maybe this is a trade and industry. Maybe this is an Ofcom problem instead. And actually they're not equipped to deal with it because they don't think about it in that way either.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think it's much more of a private public partnership that um, needs to happen to solve this problem together. And as you said before, um, a lot of without the advertising model, um, a lot of the platforms that we currently, so let's just call them a community organizing platform, whether that's Facebook or Telegram or whatever it is, um, you know, it should be a public good. And so the government def- def- should have a s- stake in it. Um, but at the same time, it's the private sector that sort of holds the keys <laughs> to a lot of what could happen, and um, especially when it comes to the implementation aspect of it.
3: So a, a congressional line item for purchasing shares in Facebook.
2: I mean, sorry,
0: that's a little more. Yeah.
2: Wow. Mm. Or Facebook can just offer an ICO. Yeah. is that. Uh,
0: is there an, is there a nervousness though from governments to, to, to act in this space because of the ethical issue? You know, that they almost, um, don't want to be seen to be, um, Partnering too closely with, the, with these companies, where the the objective is so commercial and so and gathering up so much data, and, and there's always that nervousness I think for governments around mass collection of data and mass surveillance. Um, you know, well, I guess some countries some countries are more uh, reluctant to do it than others. But um, but with with these tools being international as well, that you you're not necessarily just going to be able to you know, if you're the UK government or the US government or, or the French government um, or the EU, perhaps you're not just going to be able to say to Facebook, "Okay, we just want you to you to um, tidy up or you know, um, come up with a better way of managing the data of our citizens." Which I know GDPR legislation has been an effort to do that on the part of the EU, but it's difficult for these platforms to disaggregate data based on you know what's what what's a, the activity around a particular country, or uh, you know, citizens of that country, because so much of what they're that they're um, promoting and and managing is uh, is borderless, I guess. It's you know, so government intervention, I guess, in that sense, is is further complicated, and it's it's just harder to, to do. And and the, the well, ultimately, we are going to be reliant on the companies themselves in many ways to. Police themselves. Um, I mean, I, I almost struggle to say it with a straight face, but what um, to come up with some way of, of managing the, this whole issue?
2: I think there's also the fact that the gov- um, government does not want to interfere or seem like they're interfering in capitalism, right? Um, it, and um, but I think uh, a lot of the social media companies, when they first created these companies, they obviously didn't have nefarious uses in mind. I think they did it for a genuine, like well-intentioned, um, uh, motivations. But it, I was talking to someone at Facebook a couple weeks ago, um, who is in charge of their products. Um, when it comes to, uh, I think he's in charge of like how the, how various Facebook products can be used for trafficking um uh, narcotics and 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 terrorism and one of the things he actually brought up which i was really glad to hear is the fact that a lot of the product teams now they have a new red teaming component and their job is to take products that they want to create and, and then say hey okay if i'm the bad guy um, how can i misuse this and so they're starting to think about that in their initial product design um, before they even build it
0: that's interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah, I think that that that's a vital component, surely. Um, now that we know so much more about how those platforms and tools can be misused, yeah, they've they've got to really be doing that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's also a really the good point. That,
3: there's also the fact that these are um, these are particularly difficult because they're compound problems. Um, you know, the example of Facebook. Um, you know, if it used um tremblers in people's phones, you know, the accelerometer to to try and work out where the individual you know, and enforce two-factor authentication, then you try, you'd be a lot further along in trying to work out which accounts were actually real and which weren't. Um, that would also tie it to um, telecoms companies and the infrastructure that allows that movement because now you've got, yeah. and I, I know that this will expand exponentially the amount of data that is flying around that is geolocatable and, and probably have problems of its own. But in terms of trying to understand which accounts are fake and which are not, um uh, in trying to understand um how to make certain accounts accountable accountable for their activity when it is um extremism when, when it is um full of racism when it is inciting violence that's a really interesting if if complex technical um route to go down but there's also on the other side of it you know the the use of the commerce clause as a as a mechanism for enforcing civil rights in the United States is inspired. Um, It is a spectacular interpretation of that. And whether you think it's right or wrong, that that was how it should be interpreted. Um, Nevertheless, that's the way it's been interpreted. Um, So some creative understanding of how commercial legislation um, or federal legislation applies to these organizations would be interesting test cases to see, you know, is 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 Twitter, Facebook, other platforms, you know, are, are they, um, are they, are they, do they fall under the jurisdiction of the Commerce Clause, for example, um, and is that one way to restrain their activity or to try and um, deal with this problem?
2: I will love to know the answer to that. <laughs> you should have a lawyer. Mm. on your yeah, podcast. <laughs> not
3: being a lawyer, I, I dare not go there. It's just a really, <laughs> I think a really interesting idea that, that, you know, that that might be the way. In fact, I heard an NPR politics um, podcast recently talking about the commerce clause and civil rights. And that was the first time I realized that that's that's how it had come about. But it just struck me as a really interesting idea for how to look at novel ways of, um, of, of using the existing legislation to, to make a difference, because that seems a lot more promising than trying to pass any new legislation or oh, this millennia, maybe.
0: And I think that's indicative in a way, Carl, of a lot of what we've discussed in this, you know, last hour or so in terms of the challenges that we face in looking at, you know, the open source information space what's happening in terms of the, the scaling up of information and, and propagation of uh, messaging and, and disinformation, uh, some of the ethical issues around trying to grapple with that. Um, and it, it, Ivana, it would be great to get your thoughts on, you know, all out of all of these challenges, out of all of the things that you're facing in terms of trying to understand and track um, strategic messaging, etc. cetera, you know, is there is there something that keeps you awake at night, or, or gets you thinking about, you know, actually there's some developments coming along that we're actually really that you're worried about, that we all should be worried about, and the public at large ought to be worried about.
2: Um, this is a very pessimistic view. Oh things.
0: no, <laughs> I was hoping you say, oh no, no, I'm not worried about anything. It's all going to go great. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's all unicorns and puppies. Um, <laughs> So my biggest concern is how and whether a democracy can win against an authoritarian state or non-state actor when it comes to um, I.O.
0: That's uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was going to ask you who's winning. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
0: yeah, that's 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 fascinating. I mean, it, yeah, we could we could do a whole other episode just unpacking that yeah. but, um,
3: yeah. We're very, we're very much in danger of ending on the War College tradition of, um, I don't know if anybody listens to that podcast of, uh, um, of always ending on a depressing note. So Ivana, <laughs> I, I, I gotta ask you something that's probably a little bit more optimistic. If you had the opportunity, click your fingers, and tomorrow you've solved one problem in this arena, what would it be, and why? Hmm,
2: that's a great question. I think it would be to raise the educational level, and I'm going to put a pause there and split that into two sub parts. So when I talk about educational level, I'm talking about critical thinking and also um, civics um, of what just of the population, but also um, of the people who are currently in position of influence or power to change things. Because I still think that the biggest problem right now around OSINT and when we're talking about ethics in OSINT or AI or big data is that fundamentally a lot of people who can do something about it, they just don't understand enough. They sort of understand a vague realm. But if you're actually going to write regulations and come up with solutions, you have to get a little bit more in the weeds. And I'm not saying that everyone should like go and learn how to code and like understand regex and all these things. Like I'm not saying that at all. But they at least need to understand enough to um to be able to predict um and to under to be able to sort of understand like the societal impact of all of these new things are coming through and we're just not there yet.
3: Terry, it sounds like we need an ethics of Osent masterclass as the next one that we start tackling. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, well, I, I to help with that too.
3: Ivan, I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, I think civics and philosophy are the um, the inoculation against tyranny, but that's a very um, high-minded um, statement. Actually, it, it just takes a generation of teaching individuals how this new world works, I and mean, when you think how fast it changes, by the time we've taught one generation, we're going to have to reteach the next one.
0: Well, isn't, isn't the, the challenge also that, that Ivan has hinted at here that it's, it's about getting our lawmakers as well to understand, you know, how do these things work and what the impact can be and, and how to, how to understand them and how to, um, understand the content, not just how they, how this, the platforms work, but, um, you know, I mean, uh, it, it would be great if they could start by understanding the difference between some of these platforms as well and, you know, and, and methods that are being used, but that's probably also, um, beyond, beyond easy reach right now, I would say. And, and yeah, the it, education stuff, it's amazing actually how many times when we're talking about disinformation and we're talking about open source intelligence, it comes back to the education piece and the understanding and awareness and particularly critical thinking skills. Um, yeah, it's, 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 there's a definite definitely a huge gap there and I think that's something that's going to take time uh to work on but we (laughs) we will do our best um certainly I know that for sure um you know Ivana with with the there was one thing I I wanted to I know Perez we've we've been sort of talking for a while and and um uh we're almost coming to the end of the the podcast but I wanted to just Come back to something you mentioned earlier in, uh, in the discussion where you mentioned always keeping a human in the loop in terms of the work that you're doing with, uh, at Omelas and, and how that functions. It'd be great just to get your thoughts a little more on the importance of that, particularly as we're moving into that era where AI is going to start improving and we are going to start seeing, um, more of the impacts of the the types of algorithms that you know people might be using to either to propagate information or to gather and research and monitor information so how does that work for, for you guys and what do you, what might be your your sort of thoughts around that as well
2: yeah um it wasn't a hard decision for us to make actually to have um our analytics um uh can't even talk right now um for most of our analytics to um to have a human in the loop and um and so that was because a couple of reasons one is that we realized that we didn't want to actually have a black box algorithm um just in case that we had to go back and double check things two is that the geopolitical context um just moves way too quickly and um and so we we just internally for our own like precision rate and recall rate, like all of these other metrics that we use to measure how good our algorithms are. Um, We just wanted to make sure that we could actually go back and see what the machine is doing. Um, And then third is a lot of our clients that we talk to, they just would prefer to have a human in the loop just in case that something does go wrong.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess that's, part of any process that that's going to involve algorithms these days, you've got to have that sort of person there who knows what they're they're looking for and, and can spot things that the, maybe the algorithm, uh, doesn't, doesn't quite cater for. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And, um, hopefully, you know, as Carl said, hopefully we're finishing on a, a slightly more positive note, thinking about, okay, the things that can be done and things that, uh, can help us understand the issues and, and stay on top of them and help people really. Deal with some of the challenges that we've talked about um, before they get before they get too much worse than they are currently um, but yeah it's been great Ivan having you on the on the podcast and having you talk to us about some of your research and, and your expertise and getting your ideas and thoughts on some of these issues which are huge issues really but um, great to talk to you about those thanks so much for coming on
2: yeah thank you for having me.
0: No problem. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Alison, for contributing as well. It's been great um, having you guys on this podcast and uh, getting your ideas on this issue, these issues as well. And uh, we'll talk to you soon from the James podcast.